guys. I'm Ray Belline, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of expertly performed audiobooks. Audible has a selection of over 180,000 titles for you to choose from, and you can listen anytime, anywhere. If you like reading fiction, Audible has a book for you. If you like reading science, Audible has a book for you too. If you like reading poetry, politics, or anything at all, Audible has a book for you. If you sign up at audibletrial.com slash wordsforgranted, you'll get one month free, and not only that, you'll be supporting the show. Everybody wins. You can find a link to the trial right in the show notes for today's episode, and I hope you sign up today. Before we get started, I'd like to address an idiomatic error that I made back in episode 6. I misused the expression to beg the question. Thanks to Gerard and Ferdinand for writing in and pointing this out to me. Just a disclaimer here. I try to get these episodes done as quickly as I possibly can, so sometimes a linguistic error will slip through the cracks. It's just bound to happen. I'm just one guy maintaining this entire ship, and I'm the first to admit that I'm only human. But since this is a linguistics podcast about... taking words for granted, I do feel obligated to set these errors straight if and when I make them. So, to beg the question is an idiomatic verb phrase that many speakers, including yours truly, incorrectly use as a synonym for to raise the question. The meaning of to raise the question is straightforward. If a particular statement prompts an obvious question, then it raises the question. For instance, if you're walking down the street and all of a sudden it starts raining cats and dogs, literally, that might raise the question, am I on hallucinogenic drugs? However, the traditional meaning of to beg the question is semantically deceptive. If a particular statement is founded on a conclusion whose premise lacks objective support, then that statement begs the question. For example, eating mozzarella sticks will make you happy because mozzarella sticks taste great is the kind of statement that begs the question. The statement is based on the conclusion that mozzarella sticks taste great, but because we can't objectively prove that as a universal truth, the conclusion itself is unfounded. If you're confused about what the question is, begging the question doesn't involve an actual question. It also doesn't involve actual begging. It's simply a poorly worded idiom whose awkward semantics we just have to accept, if we are to accept them at all. See, due to beg the question's widespread misusage, some authoritative sources now accept it as a legitimate synonym of to raise the question. But there has to be more to the story, doesn't there? Well, After doing a bit of research, I discovered that the linguistic origins of this phrase can be traced all the way back to ancient Greece. The ambiguous semantics of to beg the question are the result of a series of translations and mistranslations spanning the course of nearly two millennia, and, spoiler alert, it's going to be the topic of next week's episode. There's just way too much for me to distill down into a few words. 
Again, thanks to Gerard and Ferdinand for bringing this to my attention, and especially to Ferdinand for providing me with some research material. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get on to today's episode. I'd like to start things off with a high school anecdote. Brace yourselves for this tremendously unique story. One of my friends, let's call him dude number one, had begun dating the girl of his dreams. Let's call her the girl. And after a few months, they broke up. More specifically, she broke up with him. Not only had the girl broken up with dude number one, but she also had cheated on him with dude number two. Dude number one, the guy who had been cheated on, was just about the sweetest guy you could ever imagine, and he was absolutely crushed by the way things had turned out between him and the girl of his dreams. To make things worse, dude number two was his friend. In response to all of this, my friends and I, ardent defenders of dude number one, cut dude number two and the girl out of our lives, and the two of them lived miserably ever after until they broke up a few weeks later. Did you catch all of that? Good. So, why am I sharing this completely petty story with you? Well, it was the first time that I had deliberately ostracized anyone. I could have started today's episode with a more interesting example of ostracism from my years as an adult, but I chose this completely petty high school drama because it brings the notion of ostracism down to earth. Lately, the word ostracism has appeared in news headlines describing politicians who have defied the expectations of their parties and athletes who have protested social issues, but don't let these high-profile ostracisms fool you. Anyone can be ostracized. You can ostracize your neighbor, your mailman, your co-workers, or your ex-romantic partner. And of course, they can ostracize you too. According to the dictionary, to ostracize means to exclude or banish someone from a society or group. Note that the terms and conditions of exclusion or banishment aren't specified. An ostracism might manifest as the silent treatment between two people or as a boycott of meat from the local butcher because you don't like the way his butcher shop smells. In other words, an ostracism has no predetermined criteria. But this broad sense of the word was not always the case. The word ostracism has its origins in ancient Greece, ancient Athens to be precise, and a little more than 2,000 years ago, an ostracism's terms and conditions were laid out quite clearly. The word did not refer to a reactionary sociological phenomenon, but rather to a democratic voting process. I think it's time for us to set our time machine back to the 5th century BCE and find out why. As many of you probably know, ancient Athens is credited as the birthplace of modern democracy, and this political innovation plays a central role in today's story. For the record, democracy is derived from the Greek word demokratia, which comprises two roots, demos and kratia. It literally meant rule by the people or power of the people. For that same record, people did not actually mean people. It meant male citizens. 
Like democracies today, the ancient Athenian democracy took part in a variety of electoral votes. One of them was called the ostracismos, or, as it has come into modern English, the ostracism. In ancient Athens, an ostracism was an annually held vote by which any Athenian citizen who was believed to pose a threat to the stability of the city-state was forced into exile for ten years. But before we delve into the political and historical details of the Athenian ostracism, I'd like to look at the etymology of ostracismos. Ostracismos is derived from yet another Greek word, ostracon, which, perhaps to your surprise, means tile or broken pottery. Archaeologists formerly refer to a piece of broken pottery as a potsherd, but assuming that you guys aren't a bunch of archaeological purists, I'm going to stick with the more familiar-sounding term, broken pottery. So, what does broken pottery have to do with banishing potentially threatening citizens? Well, because it was both an abundant and free material, Broken pottery was like the ancient Greek version of scrap paper, which in turn made it the ancient Greek version of voting ballots. If you wanted to submit a name for the ostracismos vote, you would etch the name of your desired, or rather undesired, candidate onto a piece of broken pottery, aka an ostracon. Actually, you'd have a scribe etch the name of your candidate onto the ostracon, because odds are you would have been illiterate. If we trace the word ostracon all the way back to the prehistoric Proto-Indo-European language, it ultimately is derived from the root word ost, meaning bone. Though pottery isn't made of bone, both bone and pottery are hard substances, so the connection between the two meanings is easy to see. Actually, the ancient Greek word for bone is osteon, which comes from the same root. This is the ultimate source of the medical prefix osteo, as in osteoporosis, which refers to a weakening of the bones. The oist in oyster also comes from this same Proto-Indo-European root. The shell of an oyster isn't exactly a bone, but it is bone-like. So all of this means that ostracism, osteoporosis, and oyster are all cognate, and that's why I love etymology. I should note that ostraca, the plural form of ostracon, were used for more than just voting ballots in the ostracism vote. The written content of surviving ostraca include ephemera such as business receipts, short messages, medicinal recipes, and even students' homeworks. Ostraca put us as close as we can get to the everyday lives of ordinary people living in ancient Greece. Interestingly, ancient Syracuse, another Greek city-state, held a vote very similar to the ostracism, but they inscribed the names of their candidates on olive leaves. This practice was called petalismos because petalon was the Greek word for leaf. It's the root of our modern English word petal, as in a flower petal. If the word petalismos had impacted English instead of ostracismos, we would not ostracize our wrongdoers, but petalize them. Somehow, that just doesn't sound right. But I digress. Let's look at some of the legal details of the ostracism vote. According to Aristotle, the idea for ostracism was conceived in 508 BCE, but not put into practice until 487 BCE. 
Many historians suspect that the actual installation of this process was due to a number of alleged Athenian traders who supported the Persian army during the Battle of Marathon in 490 BCE. Again, to reiterate, the ostracism was an annually held vote by which any Athenian citizen who was believed to pose a threat to the stability of the city-state would be forced into exile for 10 years. With that said, the targets of the ostracism vote were not proven criminals. Rather, ostracism was seen as a preemptive measure that would remove potential criminals before they had a chance to commit their crimes. When I say criminals, I'm not talking about petty thieves or adulterers, but more specifically, tyrants. The Greek word for tyrant was tyrannos, and it had a slightly different sense than it does today. The word referred to any politician whose ascension to power was unconstitutional. A modern translation of the ancient sense of tyrannos might be illegitimate ruler, not necessarily a ruler who abuses absolute power. The Athenians took deep pride in their democratic system, so the ascension of an illegitimate tyrant would have been a violation against their political identity. Once a year, an assembly met in the center of town to decide if any one man was becoming powerful enough to establish a tyrannical system of government. Again, to the ancient Athenians, a tyrannical system of government simply meant an undemocratic or unconstitutional system of government. If the assembly voted yes, they would meet again two months later and anonymously submit the name of the man who they saw as the potential threat. If a particular man acquired 6,000 or more votes, he was exiled from the city for 10 whole years. The distinction of ostracism as a preventative measure as opposed to a punitive measure is important. In contrast to many other punishments administered by Athenian juries at the time, ostracism was actually quite mild. If a politician had committed a proven violation to democracy as opposed to a potential violation, Penalties such as astronomical fines, confiscation of property, and even death were not uncommon. On the contrary, an ostracized man lost neither his property nor his status. Both were returned to him after his ten-year exile, and apparently without stigma. For an ancient practice that has found its way into our modern language two millennia later, ostracism was a surprisingly brief-lived institution— the last recorded Athenian ostracism was in 417 BCE, just 70 years after it was introduced. By modern standards, that's a single person's lifetime. Ostracism is believed to have fallen out of usage because, according to Plutarch, the famous Greek writer, politicians themselves began rigging it. A politician could convince his supporters to ostracize his ideological opponent, even if his opponent was not actually a threat to democracy. In modern America, that would be the equivalent of a Republican politician convincing the masses to vote a Democratic politician into exile just because he or she belonged to the opposite party, or vice versa, of course. As time went on, the ostracism vote became more and more of an expression of popular anger than a protection of democratic society. Speaking about the final ostracism in 417 BCE, Plutarch writes, quote, Ostracism is no longer a chastisement of base practices, but a merciful exorcism of the spirit of jealous hate. End quote. 
What he's saying is that the original intention of the ostracism had fallen victim to personal feelings, especially personal feelings manipulated by men vying for power. Alright, that's it for this one, guys. Don't forget to follow Words for Granted on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you know someone who might enjoy the show, tell them about it. If you yourself enjoy the show, I ask that you leave a positive review on iTunes. It's not because I want you to tell me how great I am. It's because positive reviews are how people become aware of the show, and I want the Words for Granted community to keep growing. If you have questions, comments, or concerns about the show, feel free to email me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can always do so via Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding service that allows independent creators to get their work out into the world. Just head over to my website, wordsforgranted.com, to find out more. After we reach the first $100 mark, I'll be posting exclusive content available only to contributors. Okay, I'll see you next time here at Words for Granted.